Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking on urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the Think Tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this edition of City Talks. Today, my guest is Christian Woolmer. Christian is a renowned expert on all issues related to transport and particularly rail. He's the author of more than 20 books and thousands of articles and podcasts, and that's just from 2000. Christian, welcome to City Talks. I'm very pleased to be here. So we're going to talk about transport. We're going to talk about cities. We're going to talk about failed policy attempts. So let's start with the big question you've written a lot about. Um, why is Britain so bad at doing transport policy? Well, the answer is quite simple, really. Now, I wrote a book called Our Tram Socialist, and actually we only wrote it because uh, somebody suggested, uh, Diane Corr suggested the title, and it was such a good title. Uh, but actually what the book is about is the fact that we've never had a transport policy. Transport has kind of been the the sort of dregs at the bottom of the teacup. You know, nobody's actually said, well, how do we do this bit of urban planning and do it in the way that would best suit transport or works best for people in terms of getting to places, whether it's their work or, or to hospitals or uh, schools or whatever. You know, how, how does this work? We've never done that at all. We've just kind of had planning that's vaguely thought of transport. Oh, well, maybe this needs a road to it. Although sometimes you even get estates built on the edge of towns that don't even have uh, a proper pavement onto, onto the main roads. You know, it, it, it's kind of that bad. So I think ever since we've had uh, a, a transport uh, ministry, which was just after the First World War, uh, Geddes was the first uh, uh, transport uh, minister, uh, but ever since then, it's always been dominated by the roads lobby and has you know, traditionally been a kind of road transport department rather than a ministry for all types of transport. That has changed a bit in the last 20 or 30 years, which I'll come back to. Um, but essentially, uh, we had a period of really right until 1970s, 1980s, where the only consideration about transport was really was how to accommodate the motor car and how to uh, get people uh, from A to B faster by road and with very little consideration of uh, the alternatives and worse, very little consideration of the limitations of car use and of the environmental degradation that car use causes. And are there... You know, you've written about a lot of your books take a historical perspective, you know, not just the here and the now, but actually looking at the origins. And obviously you've written a lot about the the railway system in Britain, which very, you know, came out uh, in the Victorian period in particular, but was very much dominated by kind of free market principles, you know, competition between private companies to deliver certain lines. Is that part of the reason why then that made transport policy when we kind of got to it in the 1940s, 1950s, more difficult? I mean, what's the historical antecedents well, that, to that? that? That's a very interesting uh, point, because, yes, the railways were built by the free market in this country in a way that really only America, about which I, I've uh, written a book, The Great Railroad Revolution, um, can be compared. That they were UK and the US were the two countries in which the railways were really built on the basis of the free market. In other words, instead of having some sort of plan, setting out kind of a structure, uh, even the geography of the railways, 
they waited for private entrepreneurs to come along and suggest lines and they would go to uh, in the UK Parliament and in the uh, US through uh, their political uh, processes and uh, which would both have a state and a federal level and then they would agree to build uh, uh, these lines but so the impetus always came from the private sector um, and uh, that did change somewhat with the railways in the UK because between the wars uh, in 1923, the, the railways were consolidated into, into four private, quasi-private companies. They, they, they were sort of, they had some help from the state, but by and large, uh, they, they were private in a way that uh, other countries were already by then nationalized in the railways. And of course, and then in 1948, we nationalized the railways, but we do it just in a typically British kind of way of, uh, first of all, compensating the private sector with enormous amounts of money to compensate the shareholders of lost profits, but also uh, paying very little attention to what uh, the railways uh, actually needed. So they were lumped in with this big British Transport Commission uh, and largely forgotten about uh, for about seven or eight years. Mm. They were kind of uh, completely neglected. Meanwhile, on the roads, you're getting a free-for-all with, with cars, uh, uh, motorways being built, beginning to be built in the mid-50s, and really an emphasis on uh, the fact that the car was the future. And so during that period where you know, a car usage grew quite rapidly. You know, we had a lot of the A and certainly the motorway network introduced. Was that more planned or organised or, or was it a similar sort of process? I mean, what's your sense of that? No, we've never, we've we've never, never. had we've <laughs> never had any any concept of planning. And uh, the, that period was characterised by really the car can do Everything and in terms of cities, I think the most interesting example is the motorway boxes. You know, there was a plan, and this is extraordinary. Young people kind of are actually mind blown by this because they they obviously have no uh, recollection of it. But they were going to build a series of three uh, what they call motorway boxes uh, around London. So, so number one would have essentially been through this around the city and a bit more. So it would have gone out to. Uh, maybe Shepherd's Bush, Camden, um, Poplar, uh, Lewisham, and so on. And it would have been on largely on stilts. So largely it would have been a motorway through the centre of London, in the way that, you know, lots of American cities have it, Perfect, and even yeah. some British cities have, have it almost. I mean, Luton and Burnley and a few Birmingham have actually this sort of concept. But in London, it would involve the demolition of thirty to 40,000 homes. So, so all these homes, they're all Victorian, they're all Blackheath and stuff. Well, you know, yeah. Notting Hill, yeah, they're all the old houses, you know, we don't really need them. Um, and uh, what's amazing that in, in the 1960s, this was a uh, bipartisan policy of uh, both Labour uh, and the Tories, probably the Liberals at the time as well. Um, and and this was accepted that this was going to be what London was was going to be like. It mm. was you know the, there was going to be a huge interchange at Tottenham Court Road and the, the Westway, which were one of the few bits that were built, which for uh, non-Londoners is a, is a Mile, three, four mile long road between Shepherd's Bush and uh, Baker Street was basically the centre uh, into the centre. That was that was a limb off this kind of ring, and it was absolutely seen as the way forward. That you know everybody needs a car; they need to drive into the centre of towns, um, so they need these kind of motorway boxes. 
it, it is quite extraordinary that you know London would be destroyed by that, and yet it was kind of accepted. And then there's there going to be a second one where the North and South Circular is, and the third one, which was actually built, was the M25, right? Um, but the notion that uh, you could you know basically destroy a city in favour of motor cars, then fortunately was killed off. The Labour uh, won the 1973 GLC election. Uh, and quickly uh, uh, ditch this idea, but but only after some debate. And that was a turning point, because once you realise that you can't get in everything by car, then you have to think about other ways. So it was the beginning of starting to revive the underground, which was actually declining in usage, yes. beginning to look at buses, which were greatly improved in the uh, 1980s and, and beyond by, by Ken Livingstone initially, uh, um, and, and uh, other mayors have actually kind of uh, focused a, a lot on improving buses. There's been the London Overground system, which was really created from pretty much uh, nothing and so on. So, so uh, you know, there had been a reversal. You have to think this was a world in the 1960s where, you know, traffic wardens didn't exist, where um, you know, the, the 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 whole impetus was towards kind of speeding up cars, dual carriageways. The part of, of London that was most wrecked by, by by this philosophy actually is High Park Corner and Marble Arch, mm. the Park Lane uh, uh, between it. They actually took a chunk of the Royal Park. I mean, extraordinary. They how does kind of Daily Mail when you need it isn't there? <laughs> you know, I mean, they took a chunk of the Royal Park. And 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 made partly as the dual carriageway from nowhere very much to nowhere very much. It's it's a mile long dual carriageway between High Park Corner and Marble Arch. And now, uh, uh, frankly, uh, Sadiq has done this wonderful thing of nicking a bit of it for a cycle route. Um, and the protests still go on. People don't understand that the urban realm is desecrated by having an emphasis on the cars. Yeah. And 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 that's I think that's at the core of. of all I write about in a lot of other respects that that you know that we we cannot have it both ways. We can't say yes, we need lots more roads and lots more space for cars, and we want a nice urban realm where people can travel around by alternative means and so on. There, there's a cost there, and and it's well expressed in the row over ULEs, which we can come to. Yes, no, quite. Well, it's a, a recurring theme in uh, in many of the conversations. You know. There are trade-offs that we need to understand and make some decisions around. And as you say, assuming that um, we can have everything uh, is wishful thinking, but not helpful. Just to continue on, we'll come back to this transport policy question in Britain for a second. But you talked about, you know, essentially Britain not having uh, a coordinated approach. Compare that to um, to Europe, because I know you've kind of looked at Europe as well. In general, um, a they have better public transport systems. And B, they have a more coordinated approach to thinking about how those systems A originate, but how they operate and how the intermodal kind of aspects yes. work. Is that and and, and, and so, sadly that, that is that, that is, uh, is that? and I, th I think there's there's uh, one fundamental reason, which is that they have a greater understanding of externalities. Not quite the language they put it yeah, in, yeah. but. Uh, uh, they understand that uh, public transport does not need to pay its way. And, and, and that, that is the, the absolute core of it. You know, it's a social democratic concept, which actually is even accepted by quite right-wing parties in Europe in a way that the Tories does never do. The Tories, you know, are 
uh, I always like him to the the, the 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 scorpion and the scorpion and the frog story, right? Where the the, the frog goes across uh, the river and and the scorpion asks for a lift, and uh, the, and halfway through the scorpion kills the frog. Um, and the frog is dying. So why did you do this? Because I'm a scorpion. And it's the same with the Tories. They just <laughs> they just can't get round the idea that this is not the whole concept of public transport and of of externalities and of understanding wider issues is not should not be perceived as a right left issue. I mean, what is the country with the best public transport in the world? Switzerland. Are they a socialist country? You can't meet anybody less socialist than the Swiss, right? <laughs> you know, it's just absolutely not. But they understand this very basic concept. So I think in a lot of the towns and cities where you get kind of uh, good public transport, and, and I'll come to the integration thing in a minute, but you get good public transport because... Uh, the city authorities and the national government are prepared to pay for this and are prepared to say, well, uh, yes, uh, you know, this needs to be subsidized. I will need an ongoing subsidy. Whereas in the UK, you get these idiot politicians, and they're not all tourists, who say, oh, well, we'd like to you know, have a bus route here, but, you know, it, it will cost money and, and the cost of taxpayers' money. So, um, you know, you can't have your bus route because it will cost people money. Whereas they don't view it in terms of, externalities, which which is the, the fact that it brings lots of benefits to people who don't use the buses. Very simple concept. And yet you talk to right-wing economists, and they somehow always kind of ignore this fact that, you know, you, 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 you provide a service to a certain group of people who then don't drive their cars, who then are able to get to work, who then you know, don't kind of uh, uh, have to uh, use all sorts of polluting methods to get there and pay for taxes and whatever. They get there in kind of a, a cheap, reasonable, accessible, sustainable way. Um, and that benefits the whole of society. So there's that. But do you have a sense as to why that view is what well, it's Europe and European thinkers on the left and the right? And you say it doesn't really permeate British thinkers on the left or the right. I mean, I think it comes very office. deep. I think it right. comes very deep. What I said earlier about uh, the, the way that we develop railways in this country. And yeah, if you went to Belgium or France or other countries, even Russia, they developed them in a different way where the state said, we probably need a railway here and we'll get private people possibly to build it or not. We might build it ourselves, but, but we are going to determine where those railways should go. And, and so there is something deeply ingrained in the British political culture so that even the Labour Party, uh, of which I'm a member, a former parliamentary candidate, even the Labour Party doesn't really get to grips with the fundamentalism. Yeah. Now, Barbara Castle did, and she was... And you're a big fan of Barbara Castle. So that's a good segue yeah, into, yeah, into yeah, her I mean, thinking when she was she Minister of Transport. Transport, well, what's now called Transport Secretary. And, and she understood the notion that you have... A, a commercial railway, which pays its way, like, you know, the trains between London and Manchester, largely you can get them to pay their way. Lots of people want to go between London and Manchester, but uh, probably between uh, Leeds and Grimsby, they don't, right? And so they need something, they need a community railway. And it, it's that understanding that uh, we don't have. But I just want to say something which I, I want to add about because you made two points about this. You made one, one is that we, you know, that we don't have the kind of 
uh, a public uh, system, but also we don't, it's not integrated. Yeah. And, and of course, London, it is integrated. You know, we have Transport for London, which does it all and has different colored kind of roundels for each kind of service it provides, you know, right down to the boats and uh, a private hire and whatever, you know, it, it's kind of brilliant and the bike hire and whatever. Um, and uh, essentially, Outside London, we don't have that because we have this fragmented privatised network where we privatised the buses in 1986 and we sort of privatised the railways uh, uh, in, in uh, 1993 to seven. Um, and we don't actually um, have this concept of uh, the, the different transport systems feeding off each other. The best example of this, of course, is, is, is Newcastle or, or Tyneside, where before they privatized the, the the buses they had a kind of system whereby the buses fed the metro system mm -hmm. um and and uh, and then they privatized the buses and said oh no that's that's against competition rules we need competition and and so uh so the buses ended up competing with the metro which is completely ludicrous and we're only after 30 years 40 years nearly kind of reigning back on that and and oddly enough even the Tory government has kind of accepted that by allowing bus franchising in Manchester so are you are you so give me a yeah. sense of your what's your thoughts on you know the city transport authorities now that we're seeing being re-established and given a bit more oomph in places like Greater Manchester or uh, Liverpool city region and and particularly you know bus franchising as you understand it in those places that that would uh, seem to be a good move, right? Uh, that that is a great move, but only on one condition, <laughs> which is money, of course. Yes. Which is that if you if you if you don't if you don't kind of support uh, these initiatives uh, with with real money, and and we do in London, even though I mean, good London does get squeezed, and you know the London transport system is now again paying for itself, which is amazing, thanks to Elizabeth Line. Uh, which is pretty amazing because, uh, uh, but it shouldn't have to be doing that. You know, it should still get subsidised because of the externalities that I talked about earlier. But uh, so as long as uh, in Manchester and Leeds and Birmingham and all these places, they they begin to reintegrate these these uh, services. And again, that does mean that you limit competition. You know, that's part of the game. You know, it's no good allowing private sector interests uh, to uh, pick off the, the profitable routes and then you subsidise the others. You need cross-subsidy. I remember talking to Brian Suter, who founded Stagecoach, who absolutely hated cross-subsidy. It was the thing that he was most kind of intent on saying, you must never have cross-subsidy. You know, every route has to pay for itself. And I never quite, he's a very intelligent man, I never quite understood why he was so obsessed with that. But uh, so you need you you need the, the two to go together. You need You need the money uh, to do this, and you need unfettered powers to, for local authorities to actually take over uh, the the uh, running of services. And we haven't quite got there yet. Um, you know, I think they're still tinkering about with the legislation. Uh, it's required that this idea of competition goes completely against that. If you if you have competition, you can't have a rational system, and that that's true of, of the railways. As and well and going back to um, to Barbara Castle, you know, the, so she was uh, transport minister in the nineteen sixties or mid sixties, late sixties, so for two or three years, two or three yeah. years. Yeah. But she did have quite radical plans about integration, about yeah. you know, the Manchester kind of metro, etc. She created which, uh, she created the the PTs, the passenger yeah, which transport, never quite, quite never quite 
envisaged, or they never quite happened in the way that she envisaged uh, them. They didn't. They Is didn't have as much. Yeah. Well, why, they, was, they, why was that? No, they did. They did actually get control of, okay. of most of the services and bus services in in their areas. It was it was then the forced uh, the the the. the abolition of uh, uh, the Metropolitan Councils, uh, which ran them, and then the uh, forced uh, privatisation of the bus network in the mid-1980s, which then weakened those authorities. But they are inherently a good idea. Um, You know, what's better than uh, a local town council or whatever running its services? And uh, interestingly, a few bus Companies have survived, like in in Reading, they still have their own. Uh, Nottingham uh, do as well. Nottingham, they run their own yeah, as well. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, uh, these often win prizes as the best kind of bus services and the like. And uh, you know, it's 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 so brainlessly obvious that there, <laughs> there isn't kind of much money to be made out of you know bus services, which uh, is are an essential uh, social service for. Uh, people without cars and indeed to help people get around in places where there are a lot of car restrictions and parking, wherever buses are the obvious way to do it. I mean, if I was if I was creating cities from scratch and I was, you know, uh, had dictatorial powers, you know, I would actually, you know, have a system whereby you had on the main roads, you only had kind of, you know, buses, trams and maybe emergency vehicles and maybe in some of the residential areas, you'd allow kind of local taxi services, but you would kind of have, you know, cycle lanes everywhere and uh, uh, enable people to get around easily. Uh, you'd always have a bus stop within, say, two, three hundred yards of your home or, you you know, whatever. You'd, yeah. You know, you, we would not create the system that that, yeah. that we have. Nobody would. I mean, you know, transport plans all largely speak in the same language and, and understand that. Uh, essentially, you need a regulation and control and the like. And we are we are moved back from you know we have moved back from the days when people believed that the car could solve everything and that you know there was unfettered kind of uh, use of uh, private vehicles was feasible. So so we have moved back from that. You know, you have parking restrictions. I mean, you have. But there's still battles. I mean, the, the ULEs, which we have to mention, uh, you know, is is part of that battle. So there's battles about having traffic wardens. There's battles about controlled parking zones. You know, I, I lived in areas where they imposed a controlled parking zone and you got these public meetings where Mr. Angry would get on and say, oh, I'm spending 40 quid, 40 quid to park outside my house. Why should I pay 40 quid to park outside my house? Well, actually... It's not his piece of road. That's why. But you know, explaining that to Mr. Angry is not easy. But I know we got control parking zones. So most places in urban areas now have you know you have to pay for parking. Right. That's 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 a start. But then then you have to kind of then you have things like the congestion zone, which has been a success in London, but it's been impossible to 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 introduce them elsewhere because uh, you know when they, when you've attempted demo, democratically to to do that, like in Manchester, they'd be rejected. Um, in Edinburgh, they're rejected. I mean, it, it just because uh, people could only see the short term. Like, even in Stockholm, actually, but interesting enough, they introduced it and then had a referendum. They did. only got away with by fifty one forty nine yeah. or something. Yeah. You know, even though it was clearly very successful. And you know, the Swedish are kind of you know quite into regulation stuff, so they only just got away with it. But um, you know, it's an obvious kind of solution. And then we have ULES. 
where, uh, you know, I, I recognize uh, the issues over it for a small number of people, but essentially, you know, are these people who go to court to kind of stop this basically saying, well, we like our kids to breathe kind of foul air. It, it's really good. For, it's, it's kind of, you know, they man up if they breathe foul air or whatever, you know, I mean, what, what nonsense is this? Like we have debates about this, yeah. you know, of course, a scrappage team could have been better. Twelve pounds fifty is quite a lot, Sadiq. You know, but um, you know, I, I actually, I actually, I mean, I, I should barely say this because the, 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 my opponents will laugh at me. But I own a non-compliant car, right? Because because we use it about once a month. And we just couldn't be bothered to buy a new car for a car week that sits outside once a month, occasionally to move my grandkids around for something or another. So we pay £12.50 every time we use the car. And it's great to tell it. It stops me using it. You know, it stops yeah. me, uh, you know, giving my stepdaughter a lift around the corner. I say, no, so I'm not paying £12.50 to save you a mile walk. You know, so it, it actually works, right? You know, uh, and uh, buying a new car would cost several thousand pounds if it's not worth my while. So... Uh, um, you know, it, it, it works. And of course, there are some edge cases that are unfortunate. You get kind of big on social media. You know, the plumber who lives in Surrey and has to come in every time uh, or, you know, or or somebody visiting their sick mother who lives over the border and they're, they're paying £12.50. OK, yeah. but actually, if the scrappage seem to be a bit more generous right from the beginning, you can buy a new car, not a new car, but you can buy a compliant car for £2,000, probably not in London, but you can go to, to Swansea or somewhere like that, get a £2,000 car, then drive it into London, use it in London, right, uh, which is compliant. So actually, there's not very many people who suffer badly from this. There's a few. And what does the – I mean, it's an. I mean, you see a very similar uh, conversation, discussion around – uh, low traffic neighborhoods, for example, yes. which is really about winners and losers and freedom, as people understand it, to do what essentially they think they should be allowed to do. Those are the kind of big principles, I think, associated with it. What does that tell you about where we are with the sort of the thinking around transport that you were alluding to? You know, are we are we making progress? Because it, it's been interesting that, you know, it was the mayor of London that introduced you, Les. It wasn't national government. And it was fact, a Tory mayor of London. And, and, and national government has been resistant yeah. to it, as indeed as the national Labour you know, leader. And Starmer saying, well, maybe we shouldn't do this and all the rest of it. So, I mean, where does that, where does that the recent experience leave you with thinking about where we are on some of the issues? I, I, think, I think far too much attention is paid to the right-wing press, social media, and, you know, a few edge cases. Right. Um, and... Uh, actually, when you come to polling that is representational polling, uh, in other words, you ask a thousand people kind of randomly around an area, do you believe in uh, low traffic neighborhoods? The results are largely 60% are in favor. I mean, that's across the board. Uh, this woman, Emily Carr, has, has in, in, in Oxford has kind of analyzed them all. And, and so that by and large, it's 60% kind of in favor, 25, 30% against. and. Uh, 10 or 15 percent of don't knows right you know so uh, uh people broadly like the idea of course there's the odd bad kind of example where maybe they blocked off a street that they shouldn't have done or made it whatever i live on an ltn as it happens that has been there for 35 years right you know uh um and it, all it is is just a blockage at the end of my street i live i live in in holloway it's it's blocked off, right? So you can't cut through from from Holloway to Tufnell Park. Right? If it was open, you'd get a thousand cars a day cutting through because it cuts off a, a traffic light and a and a, mm. and a, a way through. You know, it would be a thousand cars a day or something. Instead, 
it's about eight cars a day in front of my window. Yeah. Right? I mean, nobody in their right mind, although I had an argument with a prominent kind of anti-LTN who said, oh, no, we should open them all up. You know, they're, they're all kind of a constraint on freedom. It's a kind of intellectual dead end, though. And and I, I mean, I wrote a piece of The Guardian a, a, a couple of weeks ago, basically saying that, you know, uh, Richie Sunak has gone down an intellectual dead end because w- w- what is he saying? That that any constraint on car use is, is wrong, the 30 mile an hour limits, 70 mile an hour limits, one way streets, uh, parking restrictions. I mean, what is this all war? It should on the be washed away. Yeah, all of, be, what is this war on the motorist? Yeah, what is this war on the motorist concept that, uh, you know, is very, very vague, you know, and, and I think the mistake that Keir Starmer made, which you allude to, is that he went along with that and he didn't realize, as I wrote in The Guardian, that if somebody is declaring war on war on the motorists, uh, you have to treat it as a war and you have to say, no, I'm mean, it's not a war on the war on motorists. It's, it's actually, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the whole idea of LTNs and ULEZs and, and whatever is, is a rational allocation of resources uh, to people who need them. And yes, you're about to get a few losers, but are, are they really that many losers? I don't think anybody loses out with the fact that my road is blocked, apart from people who want to take use it as a rat run. Yeah. Otherwise, um, I think the language that has has been taken over here. In in the when there were first kind of LTNs, there was the the, the language was kind of on the side of the LTNs because it was stop rat runs. That was that was what was their expression was stop rat runs and. Stopping rat runs, we're all in favor of stopping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah. LTNs, you know, not an expression anybody had heard of, uh, even me, kind of uh, two years ago. Uh, LTNs that kind of are this kind of vaguer kind of uh, uh, concept that, that, and the five minutes, uh, sorry, the 15 minute city, okay, completely bonkers that people uh, misunderstand this deliberately. I mean, Emily Carr, who I mentioned earlier, the Oxford councillor. Uh, you know, who was in the midst of it. Oxford was at the centre of this kind yes, of anti-15-minute yeah, yeah. kind of thing. And she said it was mad. We were getting radio stations from kind of uh, Ohio kind of, you know, uh, interviewing us about uh, the fact that you were trying to stop people from leaving their neighbourhoods and imprisoning them. But that's part of it, right? I mean, in yeah. a sense, you know, the, the, the book you alluded to or the title of the book that you alluded to is Our Trans Socialist, right? I mean, and you you categorically in the in the book say no, no they're not but yeah. there is a sort of enduring fairly strong sort of meme associated with planning in general and transport planning that is about you know central control central planning which we you know the british to a degree have a, res- a, a sometimes a soft sometimes a hard resistance to do you think yes i think it's exploited yeah. i i, I yeah. think that that by and large uh, it's the fact that we have the Daily Mail kind of, uh, uh, you know, ru- ruling our intellectual processes, um, and uh, that uh, any rational assumption, uh, assessment of planning is that you know, uh, uh, by and large, it's kind of trying to redistribute resources uh, more fairly and stopping kind of exploitation of. Of the fact that land is a limited resource. Now, I mean, it, it it's obviously more complicated than that, and there's bad planning and good planning, and uh, there's sometimes mistakes made around the uh, implementation of these sort of schemes. Yeah. But by and large, I think it's a conflict uh, on the part of 
the right-wing press, that they've managed to uh, take over that debate uh, using its terms of reference um, and failing quite deliberately to recognise the advantage of, say, a ULES zone, which improves air quality um, for uh, ultimately for all people, and is uh, an LTNs which actually can transform people's lives. Yeah. I mean, there is the uh, the famous San Francisco 1960s research, which showed that you know people who by Appleyard people who live on uh, busy streets or medium streets or quiet streets have different numbers of contacts with their neighbours and that, and that you know, people who live on quiet streets are more likely to know their neighbours, more likely to pop in to uh, see them and so on uh, than people on medium busy streets oh, and especially the people on main roads. And, you know, that makes common sense. I mean, you know, if you live on the North Circular, you probably kind of lock yourself in your house and, and, and certainly don't want to go out of your front door. If you live in, in my street... Uh, everybody's out on the streets the whole time, you yeah. know, uh, because because uh, it's quiet. And that's so obvious and such a no-brainer. And it's so sad that there is this these kind of uh, uh, entrenched positions over a series of issues, which are all the ones we've discussed, where, you know, even if you're against them, at least let's have a, a debate about them and, and how we can improve these policies, but let's kind of work together to, towards goals that are about creating better urban spaces. And as you said, while we're before this, we started the conversation, as you said, there's an awful lot of uh, uh, towns and cities across Europe which are better living spaces, not just because they're better off, not even just because they uh, have better transport, because I think there was a recognition that cities are about more than cars whizzing about as fast as possible. Yeah, no, that is very well. Um, we'll finish with a, a question about um, what you would want to see if we if we did develop a, a, a transport policy in Britain. What would you? What would be some of the components to it? But just on that point, I, I get asked this a lot, but I mean, it's slightly different context, Christian. So I'll ask you. Um, which which country and which city or cities do you think have a, the best transport system? You know, if somebody says to you, Britain is very good, where should we, you know, where do you look for inspiration and uh, and vision? What What's the kind of... Well, I'm sorry, I'll be very obvious on this. I've mentioned uh, uh, Switzerland already. I, I mean, the, the thing about this, the Swiss thing is that they actually have standards by which... Uh, the state has to meet transport needs. In other words, if you live in a village of 5,000 people and it's uh, 20 miles from the, 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 the city of 50,000 people, you are allocated a bus service of a certain frequency. Right? You know, that, that, so, uh, and, and you know, if you have a uh, tram kind of on the outskirts of uh, the city that goes into the centre, you then have a bus network that feeds into it. Right? it it's, it's kind of the whole idea that things are fed into each other and and some cities around Europe have kind of uh, uh, pretty good uh, approximations of that system and then of course in terms of, of, of cycling which the Swiss are kind of okay but not brilliant and you have certain cities like like Copenhagen and, and Amsterdam and Groningen and, and places where you know they, they understood 40 50 years ago that you know cycling was uh, a, a you know a, a fantastic way of improving the city realm and and I must say to give credit to Boris Johnson which is not something I do often you know he did understand that probably better than 
than uh, any than Ken Livingston certainly, and and he did actually uh, begin the process of of turning London into a, a cycling city, from which I benefit personally enormously mm. uh, by having a lot more of my journeys in much yeah. less more safe safe uh, uh, conditions. So. Uh, you know, we shouldn't just diss this London. We should we should kind of recognise that that it, and it's got a fabulous uh, new uh, uh, transport system, the Elizabeth Line, that is literally, unless you correct me, the best urban railway in the world. Mm. I can't think of any no, other no, no. that is that is to that standard. Uh, the frequency, the the size of the stations, the the comfort of the trains. I mean, just everything is yeah. is is kind of world class. So yeah, we shouldn't we shouldn't just kind of. Uh, uh, moan moan about things, but uh, so we all know what the what the good the good cities are. You know, we know that in America, there's only really New York that has any approximation of a decent uh, public uh, uh, transport system. I mean, a few others, Boston and San Francisco, have kind of okay things, but there are whole cities where people are forced to own a car oh if they have if they want a job because there is no other way yeah. for them to get around, yeah. and that. That is dystopia as far as I'm concerned. Agreed. Okay. So um, obviously uh, there will be a general election sooner rather than later, mm-hmm. albeit even we don't exactly know when. Let's imagine that uh, transport suddenly becomes a thing or a very important thing. Well, it should do. It yes. should do. Um, what would you want to say, irrespective of who's saying yeah. it, let's not worry about yeah. that, but who, what would be the components of a coherent, comprehensive Sort of transport policy. Well, well you've got you, them in place. You, I mean, they're they're available. I mean, I mean, as I say, you know, transport planners and transport geeks like me can kind of you know know what the answers are. So you know, you you have an emphasis on the public sector. You have an emphasis on uh, subsidising services that need it, and yet you retain a kind of commercial interest. I mean, you know, my book, which we haven't mentioned on, on British Rail BR, A New History, very much emphasizes the fact that the people running BR understood that you both have a commercial side where you try and make money out of certain aspects of providing trade service, and then you have other services that you subsidize. So you, you need to understand that. But I think at core is a philosophical change. And I think that's, that, that without that, you're not going to get anywhere. And the philosophical change is a, a recognition of this kind of economic concept of externalities, but but uh, I suppose to put it in a different way as a kind of social democratic concept that uh, you know transport is not something that you view merely as a commercial proposition. You 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 have to view it as a mix of commercial aspects and social aspects, and therefore. Uh, you you determine your transport policies around that. Now you have debates about how much you subsidise, what you subsidise, uh, uh, how you improve it. But you could start off by getting quite a big pot of money from uh, you know road investment funds, funds allocated to road investment, which was at one point twenty seven billion. But I'm sure some of that's being cut and and uh, reading through the government kind of finances is virtually impossible. But there's still a great nice pot of money there that could be reallocated. Um, and and essentially, yeah. People then say, well, what about rural bus service? And uh, what about this? What about that? And you say, well, actually, in some places, it just is not economic to provide a a, 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 a really good kind of uh, a bus service. You're just not going to get there, right? You know, you just don't worry about that. What you do worry about is the the kind of fifty percent of bus routes that have been cut since mm. the year two thousand 
uh, and the fact that we're going to cut more if we don't kind of support this sector, and the fact that you 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 then have to put it in the hands of people who 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 love it, <laughs> you know, some TLC. You don't have bus stops that kind of you know have no information on them or. Uh, you know, you don't have websites that are completely cobwebbed. You don't have kind of uh, people who, when you get on the bus, uh, grunt at you and kind of don't tell you kind of where the bus is going and so on. You you kind of need a kind of uh, uh, a, a bus service and network that uh, you know treat people as as customers. And and I emphasise buses on purpose here because the, the railways. Of course, I've written a lot about railways, and I think the railways ought to, to be renationalized. So that's a whole different issue, which, which I can discuss at great length. But uh, I think buses are the neglected area here, and particularly buses. We particularly forget them because in London, we have a fantastic bus network and we have bus information at virtually every stop and so on. Uh, whereas, you know, go to go to, to Grimsby or, or, or Swansea or wherever, and you have cutbacks and lots of suburbs have no bus services at all and so on. So 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 we ought to start from that. Agreed. Uh, at Centre for City, you, should, you, you never have to apologise for talking about uh, buses, uh, <laughs> Christian. It's uh, it's one of the topics that we, uh, and one of the issues that we uh, we love discussing and trying to raise the profile of which you've done brilliantly today. Uh, my guest today has been Christian Warmer. Thanks very much for being part of City Talks. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you like what you heard. You can also follow the centre on Twitter at Centre for Cities or like us on LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner, used with permission and all rights are reserved.